Welcome again to Door Creek Church. Glad that you could join us from wherever you are. And a huge, huge thank you to all of you who gave to the Haiti offering. Over 10,000, almost 11,000 to date, given to our partner on the ground there in Haiti, Mission of Hope, working with pastors, local churches, and doing a world of good. Your giving is really making a difference in this really hard, sad situation that continues to unfold. So thank you, thank you. Today we're gonna to talk about misplaced priorities from the book of Haggai. When it comes to priorities, Mark Twain said this. He said, if you wanna change your life, you need to change your priorities. As we reflect on misplaced priorities, it reminds me of that classic skit that I love to watch with my dad, Abbott and Costello's Who's On First. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's worth going and digging that one up on YouTube. Who's on first? Because that, in a sense, is the question that God is asking his people through the prophet Haggai. Who's on, who's on first in your lives? Who's first place? Where, where are your priorities? Psychologist Dr. Noam Spencer recently wrote an article in Psychology Today entitled Lessons from the Pandemic, What Coronavirus Reveals About Us. And it's a little bit of a downer because he's cynical about our ability to see lasting change. He says, by nature, we're rigid and unwavering. We respond strongly and quickly and powerfully to the immediate, to our current situation. When we have $1, having $2 is a dream. But when we have $100, $2 is a nightmare. Our current context then dominates our experience, he writes. The memory of the past may remain, but its hold on our immediate actions and attentions loosens markedly over time. And for that reason, he writes, this is why we may predict that however grave, however serious its social impact, the coronavirus pandemic will eventually become a memory. Most of the lessons of coronavirus. And he begins with the clarified priorities. Hmm. The clarified priorities of a pandemic, the acute awareness of life's fragility and worth, the new appreciation of the social simple pleasures like hugs and handshakes and hanging out together. They're going to fade with time and we'll go back to being short-sighted, self-focused, conflicted, and as mired in trivial preoccupations as ever. He says the remedy, the only remedy, is becoming aware of this default mode in our system. Do we ever have a chance of subverting it? And I'd like to say that dynamic is going on in the people of Israel when we meet up with them in Haggai. And so we got to do a little history lesson. So we've been talking a lot about the prophets who've been warning God's people that if you don't return to God with wholehearted obedience, that, that you're going to be dragged off into exile. That's now happened. Haggai is writing 70 years later and, and the times have changed. They've been suffering in Babylon, but now the Babylonians have been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. And there's this emperor named Cyrus that God moves to move his people, a remnant, some 50,000 the scriptures say, likely 200,000 when you add in the women and children, to now move from Babylon back to Jerusalem as he prophesied. He said they would be staying there for some 70 years. And so they've come back. 
they've come back under Cyrus and they began the work and they were, they were faithful. Man, it was a good beginning. They had their priorities straight and in order. God was first in their life. His work was priority one in their life. They rebuilt the altar. They reconstituted the worship of God, celebrating the festivals, offering sacrifices, laying the foundation. They're ready to build the walls when all of a sudden there's opposition from those living around Jerusalem. And they write to now a new king, King Xerxes, and King Xerxes shuts it all down. And when it's shut down, they lost their way and they became very comfortable worshiping God amidst the ruins and rubbles of the temple not yet rebuilt all they had was an altar and the little bit of the outline of the foundation and what they did do though is they started giving a lot of attention to the matters of their own homes and decking them out in this ornate woodwork and so God comes in the year 520 BC, after trying to get their attention through blight and mildew and hail, chapter 2, verse 17, he now sends the prophet Haggai with a strong word, a word of rebuke, a word of correction to teach and train God's people to live for him, to reorder their lives, to restore his honor. So grab your Bibles. We're in chapter 1 of Haggai. You're going to find at the back of the Old Testament, get to your table of contents, because it's hard to find. It's just before Matthew. You got Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Those three prophets are in the time period of what we call post-exilic, after the exile, as they come back to Israel, to Jerusalem. Verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, quoting the Israelites, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. It's not the right time to do that. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panel houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house, therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. The consequences of misplaced priorities. Now on the date, and did you notice there's a specific date in verse 1, the second year of King Darius on the first day of the sixth month. Scholars 
can tell us from the historical records that this happened in the year of 520 BC, specifically end of August, likely the 29th of August, which is this weekend. So how wild is this? 2,541 years ago this weekend, Haggai delivered this message. And because it's God's living word, it's our message that is just as current and contemporary and applicable to our lives today. So note the issue wasn't that they weren't going to build the temple. It's just not now. They want to put it off. We got more important things. And so God, through the prophet, brings this word of rebuke and says, Oh, really? So you're living in your decked out panel homes? Well, my house is in rubble and in ruins. And by the way, when he's talking about paneling, don't think about the chief stuff at the back of Menards and Home Depot. The stuff if you, you know, if you bought a new house, a lot of our wives would say, we're tearing that out or maybe we're painting over it. Not the cheap stuff. We're talking about this is, this is beautiful. This is custom work. This is, this is full on solid wood panel. This is the stuff of a luxurious home. When Jeremiah speaks of this very thing in chapter 22, he says this, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, panels it with cedar, decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? And the thinking in that day was absolutely. That was a status symbol. It was like having those, you know, those really nice things in our homes today. They may not have had HGTV, but man, they were into it. And, and it, was, it was even nicer than jo Joanna's shiplap. I mean, this was beautiful stuff, but their focus was on their comforts, on their homes, not on God's honor, not on his house. Speaking of the temple, we've got to do some work here to go. So what is failing to rebuild the temple today for God's people? Because we don't have a temple. They had a temple. So what does that look like today? So when you think about the temple, simply think about God. This was his house, his residence, for his honor to the nations, where his blessing would flow, where his word would be communicated, where people could meet with God through the offering of sacrifices given by the priests. Think about this major intersect of heaven and, and earth this kind of center point of, of the universe, if you will. Uh, think about, th this, is, this is a symbol, if you will, an archetype of God's dwelling in heaven. And so the rebuilding of the temple in Haggai's day is the equivalent of you and me loving God, as the first commandment says, with all that we have, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So God says, you've got misplaced priorities. And so I want you to consider your ways. I want you to think about your life and the circumstances of your life right now because you're not connecting the dots. You're floundering because you no longer have me as number one in your life. So think about these things. Come to grips with the consequences of your misplaced priorities. You, you plan it a lot, but think about it. There's no return, such little return, right? Y you've got food and drink, but 
but you're, you're never full and satisfied. You've got clothes, but man, you're, you're never warm. You've got money, but it's, it's never enough. It's like you've got holes in your purse. The very environment you live in has been devastated. There's a devastating climate change where there's drought and famine because of your disobedience. And so your emptiness, your dissatisfaction, your discouragement, your shattered expectations, the scarcity mindset that you have now in life is a result of your misplaced priorities. God is no longer first in your lives. That's what Haggai's saying. You're more concerned with, with your comforts than God's honor. With remodeling your homes and rebuilding God's house, you're living in luxury God's house is in ruins. And he's saying to his people then and to us, misplaced priorities. When God isn't first in our lives, there are grave consequences. If God has never been first in your life, there are grave consequences, real one, wrapped up in the phrase, we miss out on God's best for us. We think we know best, and so we reorder these things, and we think that's gonna give us what's best, and God keeps working it out where that can't do what only God can do. And we keep ending up with the short end of the stick. And so ironically, the ruins of the temple are symbolic of their own lives. They've wasted time as we often do in our lives with misplaced expectations. We're filled with regret. Our expectations fall short. It's all blown away, verse nine. And we get distracted and we head in the wrong direction, all to our own parallel. And in the end, we don't even know what is important anymore because so many things have become important. We don't know what's of first importance. So I, I read this really interesting story about the former chief solutions officer at Yahoo, Tim Sanders, who shares the following idea about how to establish your priorities. And he says, think about everything that's important in your life and assign it one of three things. It's either rubber or metal or glass. The things that are rubber aren't a big deal in your life. If you drop it, it bounces back. You're a big Packer fan and you missed the game this week. Big deal. It's not affecting your marriage. It's not affecting your work. It's not affecting your relationship with God. You just bounce back. Not a big deal. Then there are the things that are metal. Now you drop things that are metal. It makes a lot of noise, doesn't it? And, and so dropping something that's metal may be like, you know, you missed an important meeting at work. Now you can rebound from that. It's not the end of the world. You uh, overspent and, and over. Uh, you know, drew your finances from your checking account. It, it's making some noise. It's a little painful right now, but you can recover from that. And then there's the stuff of glass. Precious. Of first importance in our lives. And when we drop this, we know what happens. It shatters into a million pieces, right? And he says this. He says the things of glass can't be that even if we could piece it back together, some pieces are going to be missing, he says. It won't look the same, and it may not even be able to hold water as it once did because the consequences of it being broken will forever affect its use. 
And the thing is, he says, the only person who knows what those things are that you can't afford to drop, the glass things, is you. Is you. You're the only person who can decide these things. And more than likely, they have a lot to do with your relationships, he says. Your marriage, your family, your friends. And Haggai would say, well, actually, God has something to say about this. You don't have to figure this out on your own. The prior relationship is not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your bestie. It's God. It's God. And although I love this illustration and, you know, the power of it, the fragility of, of first place priorities and the consequences of dropping the ball or the glass, so to speak, right? It's powerful, but it leaves you with no hope. That how many times have we lost our way and, and we've dropped the things that are precious to us? And they've done that. And Haggai comes to point it out. But he just doesn't have a message of gloom and judgment and, and rebuke. He has a message of hope. Because he says it's not too late to reorder your lives. It's not too late to set your priorities straight. And so go get your axe. Get up into the forest. Chop down some cedar trees. And let's get this project going. And the amazing thing is, Unlike so many of the stories that we've been reading in the Minor Prophets is this group of people, they believe God. They took him at his word and they obeyed his command and they believed his promise and they prospered under that. We read about in chapter 1 verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai. In other words, they're one and the same. When we read the Bible, it's God's word. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I'm with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Some 23 days later, they hear God's word. They take him at his word. They don't just think it's a good idea. They don't just say, yeah, we'll do that later. They act on it now fearing the Lord. It's their, 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 their right response to who God is, this reverent, joyful, affectionate, humble obedience where, where they did it. They did it. And in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, we find out a few years later, they actually complete the job. So we read this. So the elders of the Jews continue to build and listen and prosper. Man, this is such an important word. Why did they prosper? Because they were under the preaching of Haggai, which means they, they heard it and they followed it. You guys, that's where we prosper, hearing and doing the word of God. They prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, descendant of Edo. You gotta love that name. They finished what? Building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. They got it done. 
They got it done a few years later. And so what a powerful example of the ministry of God's word, faithfully delivered and appropriately responded to. And under that, we read that they prospered. And as they prospered, they believed the promise. And the promise that God gave his people, as you go in obedience, following me, and loving me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as you do my work and rebuild my temple, I want you to know I'm with you. And I'm going to give you right hearts. I'm going to stir up your spirit, Zerubbabel. I'm going to stir up your heart, Joshua. I'm going to stir up your heart, 50 to 200,000 people, to do exactly what you're setting out to do. And it's a beautiful thing to live a life that desires to honor God in all of our lives. That's our, that's our first value, worshiping God in all of life, a life of worship where we honor him in all that we say, think, and do. Oh, prospering under, under this disposition of obedience, believing God's promise that he's with us, his spirit empowering us, energizing us, encouraging us for the work that he calls us to. God never calls us to do something he doesn't equip us to do. And so he's equipped them with himself, his presence, stirring their spirits, and now God's people with his Holy Spirit in us. And it's a beautiful thing. And as I was going through the text in Haggai of rebuilding the house, it reminded me of my friend Bart. In a story he told me years ago, I called up Bart this week and said, tell me this story. Was it your grandfather? Was it your great-grandfather? And he says, it was my great-grandfather, Jonas Larson Bergman, who came over from Sweden. And he got all the way to Minnesota, where a lot of Swedes got. Loved the Swedes in Minnesota. Married one. Best thing I ever did, right? So he gets 40 acres of a homestead. And, and what he does from the very beginning is he cordons off a corner of it. He says, that's for a church. And he builds a church there. And then 10 years later, he moves north of Princeton, Twin Cities, uh, up to a place called Oak Park, Minnesota. And he does it again. He gets the 40-acre homestead and he cordons off a place. This is going to be where a church is built. He builds a church. And Bart and his dad were just out in Minnesota a while back. And they went and saw those two churches that are in existence today. Someone who had their priority state straight, set on God, on his work in this world, wanted to build church so that other people could know about God and, and prosper in a relationship with him through faith in Christ. It reminds me of our history at Door Creek Church. Our mother church, Bethany Church, that began ministering to immigrants and then in 1965, as the city was growing to the east, they said, we got to plant a church because God's work needs to continue as the city continues to grow. And so they planted a church, believe it or not, here, this, these Badger fans on Buckeye Road. I know, I'm still not getting used to that one. And that church is now here on Dominion Drive. And it's up in DeForest and it's over on the north side. And a bunch of you call, you know, the online campus home. It's all beautiful. But that happened in 1965. Buckeye, now Door Creek Church. That same year when they could have easily said, now is not the right time. A group of people on the west side said, hey, we'd like you to come plant a church on the west side which became, in 1965, Blackhawk Church, our sister church. And over these 55-plus years, you can only imagine all that God has been doing 
in and through his church, through people whose hearts were stirred, whose hearts were devoted to God, who obeyed his command to go and make disciples of all the nations, believing what Jesus said, and I'll be with you even to the end of the age. God's favor rests on those who place him first in their lives. Let God's word reorder your life and God's spirit empower you to live it. So let's bring it home with several points of application. The first is this. We gotta just pick up on this repeated phrase. Consider your ways. Think carefully about how you're living. Think carefully right now about a number of things. Let me start off with about the big picture of your life. Are you floundering right now or flourishing? Feeling empty or full? Content or dissatisfied? Discouraged or encouraged? You, you know, the floundering side of that equation, very likely, Haggai is saying, could be pointing to misplaced priorities. And God's not letting those things satisfy because ultimately they can't. And so he's getting our attention. Consider your ways. Think carefully how you're living. They, they went off the rails with opposition. It was hard. Opponents shut it all down. And maybe something hard right now, maybe it's been the last years, maybe it's been the last months, maybe it's just this last week, and it's knocking you off course. Is there something like that? Because it happens. It happens quick in life. Consider your ways. Pay attention to what you are saying. Not right now to. Procrastination was their Achilles heel. Pay attention to these things. What are we procrastinating? Putting off when it comes to loving God and making him number one in our life. It's so easy in our youth to say, man, I'm going to get there, but not right now. I'm going to get there, but man, I, I, I got to establish myself in this career. I, I'm going to get there, but when, when I get a little more money, then, then I'll be on. Then I'll start giving. Then I'll start serving. What, what are we putting off? When you consider your ways, a good thing to do is do an audit. What do we spend our time on? I'm talking about the things that are you know, we have the freedom to choose what we're going to spend our time on. I'm not talking about the hours at work. I'm not talking about the hours of sleep that we need. I'm talking about the rest of the time. We've got 168 hours. There, there's a lot of time. Can we give account for it? Is it saying anything about our priors? So too with our wallet, our money. Follow the money. Follow the money. Jesus says it makes a beeline to the heart. It tells you everything about our priorities. We're not giving anything back to God. It's all you need to know. God's not a priority in my life. When's the last time you said to God, God, do, do, do you want me to give more? Do you want me to give extra? When's the last time we responded to God's prompting in these ways? Be careful what you call success as you consider your ways. You might think you're successful and you might be fundamentally mistaken. Pastor Rico Tice says this. I, I never forget the funeral. He says, when an older woman came to me, after the funeral and said, do you know what failure is? He says, uh, I think I do, but I think you need to tell me what you think failure is. So she said this. She said, failure is being successful at the things that don't truly matter. Success is hearing well done from the only lips that matter. That's good. Don't be confused 
on what is success. Unless God says, well done, it's not success. So consider your ways. Second point, heed Jesus' teaching. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What things? The things that we worry about, the clothes, the food, the, the everyday supply of life. He says, remember, I take care of the birds. They never have missed a meal. I, I have robed the grass and the flowers of the field in greater splendor than even King Solomon's kingly robes. In the context of Seek Ye First, there are two traps that he's speaking about, materialism and worry. And he said, when you seek me first, you'll be freed from those traps. Pursue Christ. Let him reorder your lives. Lewis puts it this way, C.S. Lewis, classic quote, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. And friends, unfortunately, that's where some of us are. We've been chasing second things and we've lost it all. Seek Christ first, the King and his kingdom, and you won't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Seek ye first Christ the King, and you won't be tied up into anxious worry. See Christ first in your life. Love him, live for him, live like him in the power of the Spirit, keeping in step with his Spirit and his mission of making more disciples of Jesus who changed the world with his love. There's a third application. It comes from Haggai, who, if he were standing here today, says, I got a challenge for you. It's the same challenge I gave my people 2,541 years ago. And it's this. I challenge you to trade your troubles, your frustrations, your desperation, your emptiness for God's goodness, for his favor, for his blessing, as you replace those misplaced priorities with God, with God. God's favor rests on those who place their trust in him first. And then this guy, Zerubbabel, and we'll end with Zerubbabel. It's a mouthful, Zerubbabel. This governor of Judah, who's the grandson of a king, Jeconiah. He's the great-grandson, actually. Jeconiah, who's from the line of David. And this Zerubbabel, who is called a signet ring, that is, he's a representative of God. He's called his chosen servant. And, and this Zerubbabel guy shows up in the New Testament in two places, in the genealogies of Jesus. He's part of Jesus' line. This one whose heart was stirred by the word of God and rebuilt the temple, the very temple that Joseph and Mary walked in with baby Jesus eight days old and dedicated him to God. The very temple that Jesus got lost in for three days when he was teaching the scribes and the Pharisees what is true. That temple that he cleansed as he drove out the money changers, right? And he reminded them this is... God's house, a house of prayer for the nations, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. That temple that he stood before when he pointed to those huge, huge pillars rebuilt by King Herod, and he said, you, you see that temple? I'm, that temple, I'm going to destroy it and rebuild it in three days. Speaking of himself, the scriptures say, Jesus fulfilled everything that the temple pointed to and was about. It's no longer in a place where we meet God, 
We meet God. We have a relationship with God. We commune with God. There's this intersect of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ, his work on the cross. This one who is God's chosen servant. This one who is his signet ring, who is given all authority. This one who in our life is in him. We prosper. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. I'll hear the message of God's word. Reflect on your life. It is not too late. This has not shattered beyond repair. Because of Jesus, we can know God and we can reorder our lives and live for him. May we do that to his honor and glory and the good of the world that he sent us out to, to love and serve. Let's pray. So, Father God, we bless you for your word. We recognize this word is God-breathed, and it is useful to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us to live rightly before you and others. And so, Holy Spirit, use your word to do a work in our lives that we might prosper under your priority leadership place in our life. Lord, we want to say, you're on first. We want to say, help us reorder our lives. We we ask that you would stir our spirit by your Holy Spirit, that the promise that you are with us, even Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, with us, that we would live for you and with you. All to your honor, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.